this is the biggest opportunity potentially that the world of business has seen for about 200 years. What we have is a clear and growing need for business to play a positive role in shaping our future. Consumers who want that, investors who want that, employees who want that, regulators who want that, and therefore a massive business opportunity to create profitable solutions to the problems of people and planet and not profitable from creating them. And it's going to happen quick. Hi, I'm Beldit Mankus. Welcome to The Purposeful Strategist. The podcast that shifts the conversation about purpose and strategy from what organizations should do to what business leaders are doing and what they've learned along the way. My guest is Sarah Gillard, CEO of A Blueprint for Better Business. As she sees it, Purpose is presenting business leaders with the biggest opportunity of the past 200 years, and it's going to happen fast. But how do you change business to serve society better while still acknowledging the need to make money? That's the question that Sarah and Blueprint are helping senior leaders of large businesses to answer. Join me to learn how she has evolved her own organization's purpose and use it to help her leadership team co-create a new adaptive strategy designed to focus the organization's resources and cope with the chaos and uncertainty of today's business environment. Sarah, welcome to The Purposeful Strategist. As a way into our conversation today, I wonder if I could ask you to say just a bit about a blueprint for better business. Uh, which I'll probably end up calling Blueprint. Um, That's fine. We all do. <laughs> and equally about yourself and kind of how you ended up there and all of that. Great. Well, I might start there, actually. So I studied politics, philosophy and economics many years ago, not thinking that it was ever going to turn into anything vocational. And quite by accident, because I got a temp job, started working in the retail industry. In the 20 years or so that I was working in the retail industry, I'd had experience of two very different ways of thinking about a business. So I began my career at the Arcadia Group just as uh, Philip Green bought it. And so experienced firsthand a very kind of pure form of short-term shareholder primacy. And what that did to the people working inside the organisation, uh, the culture, strategy and investment decisions and what success was defined as, what happened to things like relationships of trust with suppliers, the brand value, the customer experience, a whole load of different things. I ended my retail career at the John Lewis Partnership, which is the UK's largest co-owned business, also in the retail industry, but a very different way of thinking about what its role in society was, if you want to put it like that. Uh, And again, observed the employee experience, the customer experience, the strategy, the long-term resilience, the relationships it had with stakeholders. And finally, the politics, philosophy and economics degree kicked in. And I thought, well, there's something interesting here that combines all three of these elements and that can be sort of studied in relation to long-term business success, however that's defined. I sort of worked a bit in strategy, worked a bit in culture, decided that actually purpose might well be the source of the Nile for all of these things. Really sort of studied that, did some work about that in the John Lewis partnership and then found Blueprint which is this brilliant organisation working sort of in between business and civil society. Um, It is a charity. Its purpose is to create a better society through better business. 
it was created a, a while ago as a way of helping business people and other people who think about business, academia and investors and regulators and policymakers, think a bit more deeply about the role of business in society and also how to think about the human person. And it struck me that this organisation was having a huge impact. And given that I had had a sort of, you know, see the light moment about the role of business and its potential to shape a better future for all of us, I enthusiastically joined, leapt out of industry and into, I guess, the charitable sector, but still very much working with primarily big businesses. So just to kind of get a sense of that, how big is the organization when you say you work with businesses? What kind of businesses do you work with and what do you do with them? Well, the charity itself is very small. So throughout the course of its life, it's been between two and six people. It's currently four with some sort of associate relationships. But the businesses we work with typically are FTSE 100 and FTSE 250 organisations. Now, it's partly because a lot of the initial thinking and catalyst was from Paul Pullman uh, when he was CEO of Unilever. So a lot of the people who came to the initial gatherings in sort of 2010 to 2012 were CEOs of similarly large organisations. And we've sort of continued on that. So we tend to work with a small number of big businesses or large professional services partnerships at the executive team level. So working directly with the CEO, the exec directors, the board, and then often a team inside the organisation who is trying to wrestle with what does being a purpose-led business mean and how does that mean that we need to shift our thinking so we work with the leaders of the organization in sort of a coaching style. We're not consultants, so we don't have any answers, but we do have some stimulus and we have some questions. And what we try and do is support the thinking that's going on inside the organization as best we can. And then we take that learning and we try and share it as broadly as we can, anonymized if necessary. But recognizing that many businesses are on this journey in some way to becoming purpose-led, and no doubt we'll unpack a bit of what that means, but uh, no one quite knows how to do it. So what we do as a charity is learn from others and our own experience about what it takes and what some of the challenges are and some of the ways in which they can be overcome. And we share that with communities. So we've got um, a community of practice for practitioners inside businesses that are trying to do this. We've got a community of coaches and consultants, and we share what we're learning with people who are supporting businesses in other ways. And we are also trying to sort of gather and convene NGOs and charities who are also working in this space to try and create a bit more of a community of those. Anything that we can do to accelerate the transition, that's what we do. It does sound to me like it's a strategy kind of predicated on leverage. I mean, you're four, five, six people, huge organizations, big ambitions. If that's a fair description of at least one aspect of your strategy, how did you get to whatever your strategy happens to be? For me, one of the big differences in moving from a sort of commercial organisation to a charity, first of all, it allows you to focus your strategy purely on what is the impact that we're trying to have. So it forces you to think right, right at the beginning about what does success look like here? And as a charity, you know, money is important, but only as a way of continuing. So we're not trying to maximise anything. We're not trying to grow necessarily the organisation. We're not trying to beat others. All of that stuff that commercial organisations have to think about, we don't have to think about it at all. So the, the strategy was, you know, begun with the question, well, 
what is the impact that we're trying to have and how do we increase that impact using the resources that we have or the resources that we can get access to. And, and it also means that questions like resources, uh, again, don't begin with, well, what have we got? And the end with, what have we got? They begin with the question, what might we get access to? So things like collaborations, partnerships, communities, relationships become a really critical part of your toolkit when you're thinking, well, how might we maximise our impact? So those two questions really was how we began. And always we were asking ourselves, is this the best use of our time and resources and the relationships that we have in order to maximise the impact, which is possibly to accelerate the transition to a, an economy that works for all? Yeah. And you mentioned money a little bit. Charities, you know, often when I think of a charity, I think of going out and looking for donations. Where do you get your funding from? How do you get that? Well, initially, uh, so when the charity was set up just over 10 years ago, it was supported by uh, some foundations who were wanting to help catalyze a bit of a shift in how business thought about its role in society. And some individual donors, again, who were personally motivated to try and shift the system. And only about four or five years ago did the trustees of the charity begin to accept donations from corporates. And then it's very much uh, not a fee-for-service model. So we work with corporates for free. And if they choose to donate in order to help us continue the work that we do, then they do so, often sometime after the relationship has begun. And also we receive donations from other corporates who are pleased that we exist, even if we're not working with them directly. So it is as sort of far away from a transactional model as possible. And what we really try and do is get the funding that we need to survive, but really focus on the relationships rather than getting funding being the primary driver of anything that we do. Yeah, it sounds like when you think about what resources do we have, money is an important, but nevertheless, a kind of small bit of the pie that your relationships, your experience, the knowledge you have, all the rest of that is almost sort of your place in an ecosystem, if I could use a little bits and buzzword there, um, is much more kind of what you bring to the party than, oh, we've got some money and we've got some people. Oh, definitely. That's exactly how we see the money. It's a necessary condition of our survival, a bit like breathing is to a human, uh, but it's not the reason that we exist and we don't exist to breathe more uh, or <laughs> maximise our breathing. It's an important ingredient, but the, the actual purpose of the thing is hopefully a lot more inspiring than just more of it. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so you joined the organization after it had been in existence for some period of time, and you've been there about a year and a half, if I've got it right. So in that 18 months or so, have you consciously wanted to rethink either the purpose or the strategy? And if so, how'd you go about it? And if not, why not? <laughs> so when this charity began, well, the conversations began just after the financial crash. It's been going on for some time. The charity was actually formed about 10 years ago. My predecessor, Charles Wookie, who's still a trustee of the organisation, so very much involved, he did quite a lot of heavy lifting in having doors slammed in his face because, you know, purpose is quite a buzzword now and lots of people want to talk about it. But 10 years ago, it was still seen as a weird niche interest. It wasn't a sort of topic of conversation in boardrooms or executive team rooms or investors or anything else. So I think to begin with, the goal of the organization was to just increase the level of discourse and bring a bit more credibility to the conversation. So 
one of the advantages of being a charity is that there was a huge amount of deep thinking that went on. The first two years were really spent in listening to CEOs, investors, academia, faith leaders, practitioners of wisdom and virtue ethics and all sorts of really interesting experts to produce basically two bits of paper and the framework and the principles which still guide our thinking and what we do. So the first years were about depth of thinking and quality of thinking. And, you know, 10 years on, the context has changed. The primary presenting challenge is how does a business begin to transition from crudely a, a sort of thinking about a business as a machine designed to maximise profit to thinking about it more as a series of relationships between humans that exist to create shared value for society, of which profit is a necessary condition, but not the kind of goal. So what we do has changed a bit from just talking about why this might be a good idea to helping people think a bit more deeply about, well, how might you go about it to create lasting transformation? So therefore, the strategies changed a bit. You know, perhaps uh, the first 10 years, quite rightly, was about depth. And now, as well as uh, depth, we are thinking more about breadth and reach and uh, scale of impact to accelerate that transition. Does that still mean kind of fundamentally you're going to stay a relatively small in terms of number of people organization and focus a lot on what sounds like fairly deep relationships with organizations or are you thinking about a different model for how you have impact in the world well it's a good question Belden, and uh, it's constantly evolving and again it comes down to what is the impact that we're trying to have and how best might we achieve that? At the moment, what we're doing, as I said, is sort of focusing on these communities as a way of creating connection, capability, courage. I like the three C's there. <laughs> I was a you know strategist at one point. It's got to be three. It's got to start the same letter. Probably you need a pyramid in there somewhere. So yeah, I mean, all of those things we think are necessary to create this kind of action at scale that we're to catalyze if it became apparent later on down the line that it would be useful for us to grow in order to have the impact that we wanted to do then you know that's just a new challenge but i haven't got a kind of fixed idea of we have to remain small or we need to grow basically we evolve depending on how we think we're going to best maximize impact mm -hmm. so if i've got it right there sort of has been a transition in terms of the strategy not necessarily the purpose but the strategy over the last 18 months or so um, was that something you did sort of by yourself, you know, thinking deeply, going for long walks in the rain or whatever, or was that you and the other small group of staff? Did you involve your trustees? Did you reach out to some of your funders? How did all that develop? Yeah. Well, I mean, so I arrived and honestly spent the first four months just listening. You know, I really recognized that a huge amount of work had been done and a huge amount of thinking had been done and I needed to learn before having any ideas myself about what we should do. And that listening involved, of course, listening to the team, of course, listening to the trustees and their views, definitely reaching out to some of the people that we'd worked with in business and asking about their experiences of Blueprint and what they thought was needed now. We have an advisory council, so I met with many of them to listen to their experience and their thoughts about what might be needed. 
I talked to some of the other NGOs and charities working in this space, some of the uh, for-profit consultancies and agencies. So it was four months or so of listening and learning. And then we co-created, based on everything that we had heard, we co-created the strategy um, as a team. When you say co-created, if I had video of the co-creation process, what would I see? Would I see you and... Cake. You'd see a lot of cake and chocolate. Not a cake. Good, good. It always helps. <laughs> it really does. So you would see the team gathered in a room with cake and some flip charts and some felt tips and a lot of post-its and a very kind of animated conversation that, you know, wasn't just one day. It was sort of several conversations around what do we do? What could we do? What has deep impact? What has great scale? What's got the potential for both? You know, And it was really very much a team effort. I, of course, had some ideas of my own, but I recognised that the team had been thinking about this a lot longer than I had. And my job was to sort of curate our collective energy, try and concisely co-create what we were going to do and, and how we were going to do it. And so there was definitely a bit of shepherding, but really it, it was not done by me. It was uh, a team effort. In that process, how did you and the others involved in it, kind of how did you know you were sort of there? That We've talked about a lot of things. We've explored lots of opportunities. How did you test that you were coming up with the right strategy? Uh, so I think after it had been sort of written up, we took it to the trustees and sought their feedback because they are experienced individuals in their own right and had been working with Blueprint for some time. So hearing from them and getting their feedback was really important. But I think the other thing was that it was a broad articulation of what we were trying to achieve and three broad initiatives that we were going to explore to try and achieve those goals. But recognising that the context was constantly evolving, some things were going to work, some things weren't going to work, some new things would occur. So it was not a sort of rigid five-year plan of milestones and objectives and deliverables. And again, having come from a corporate background, letting go of a lot of that was part of my learning. But instead, finding ways of assessing progress and constantly recalibrating about where are we now, what's needed, how might we meet that need. So for instance, the community of practice with practitioners wasn't a defined part of the original strategy in July 22. But it was a thing that sort of popped up halfway through the year as an opportunity and is now I'd say probably one of the primary things that we're doing is taking a lot of our resources, but it's also delivering huge amounts, I think, of impact. So yeah, that was definitely an evolution. Right. Just hearing that, one of the things I think that's very helpful in this incredibly complex, chaotic world we're in is just be able to say, yeah, yeah, there's all that. That's next. But this is now. This is the stuff we're going to do. And just being able to, I find even for myself, sometimes it's very hard to go. That's, yeah, that's important. And we'll have to get to that someday, but not today. So well done if you've been able to do that. Um, <laughs> one of the uh, delights about working in a charity is that you absolutely have constrained resources to begin with. Now, you know, again, like I said, partnerships and collaborations and whatever else, but it's and say, well, let's just borrow a load of more money or sell some shares or, you know. So you have to be pretty focused on where you're going to spend your energy, but also be open to new things that might come in that are going to have more of an impact. So it's a really interesting kind of balancing act of being clear about what your next step is, but not being clear about what the step after that might be. <laughs> what you said there, I think, also takes me back to 
one of the things that first drew me into looking at purpose and strategy, which is as all of that five-year certainty goes away and you go, so what's going to keep us aligned and moving forward? Purpose begins to, I think, come more to the fore. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's what corporates are having to learn how to do. The age of the five-year plan, uh, unless you're maybe building mega infrastructure, but even then, <laughs> that does just not how the world works anymore. And so the ability to have a clear and common vision of what it is you're trying to achieve and then a very loosely held, based on the context, what's our next best step, adaptive strategy, I think is you know the only way really to survive in this chaotic world. One of the um, visual analogies that we've been using recently is, is thinking about a business or any organisation being a boat on very choppy waters. Um, purpose can act both as a sort of lighthouse or a guiding star that allows you to have direction. But it can also act as the keel of the boat to give you stability in gales and thunderstorms and turbulence and all the rest of it. And I think both of those are really critical features of what purpose can provide an organisation um, because, you know, the storms aren't going away. Um, so you need direction and you need something that sort of anchors you, provides that stability. Mm, mm, yeah. Do you feel you changed in the process of going through all that? You know, has the last 18 months changed you at all? Oh, for sure. I mean, I spent, what, 25 years in the commercial world and I became very used to, this is going to sound a bit odd, but but thinking only with my head. <laughs> so you know what it's like. You've got to write board papers. You have to answer a question before you can pose it. You have to create five different options to understand all the implications. It's a very cognitive, heavy way of being. And that is useful in many ways. But increasingly, I think, as the way that work gets done relies more on relationships and trust and collaboration and imagination and, you know, curiosity, a whole lot of sort of human skills, relying solely on your brain to assess what's going on and, and work out the next step is limiting. And I have had to learn to be much more comfortable talking about how things feel and investing in building relationships rather than coming up with a clever PowerPoint. And even things like beginning a meeting with a check-in that says, you know, how are you feeling? And is there anything that you need to kind of put down? These things used to make me really uncomfortable in the corporate world, I have to say. My team will definitely laugh if they hear this because, you know, my toes still curl a bit when I have to close my eyes and do a breathing and grounding exercise. But I have really understood the value that that kind of thing brings to the quality of the conversations that happen afterwards. So, um, yeah, I'm definitely changing. I'm, I'm not there yet, but I'm learning. Without kind of calling them all out, there have been a number of times in this conversation so far that you've clearly indicated you see, you know, the, the charity, the strategy yourself as a work in progress. Oh, for sure. Yeah, definitely. I mean, somebody said the other day, as the island of my knowledge grows, the coast of my ignorance <laughs> increases. And that's, that's exactly how I feel about it. Um, what advice might you give to a, you know, a leader of a different organization that was wrestling with their own organization's purpose and how to connect it to the strategy? I'd say it's definitely worth taking time over it. I think there can be a big rush, you know, in the normal corporate way of things, right? You know, what we need is a magic seven word purpose statement. So how quickly can we achieve that? And 
that doesn't work on so many levels and we probably haven't got time to, to go through all the ways and why that doesn't work but recognize that it is going to take time and it is worth taking the time because if an organization has a clear sense of purpose that was discovered in the right way involving people and all the rest of it it can be the thing that fuels it for the future if not it can be the thing that creates yet more cynicism and disengagement and you know all the rest of it. so it really is worth taking the time because it, it can be the thing that creates attunement between purpose strategy and culture one of my <laughs> favorite sayings is culture might eat strategy for breakfast but purpose chooses the venue invites the guests and sets the table so it's really important to think hard about it before you try and uh, leap straight into so what does this mean with the organization and it is really about uncovering the identity of the organization so it's not about imposing something or inventing something um it's about uncovering the identity and it's also about imagining the future and imagining the kind of organization and the kind of future that you want and how the organization is going to help shape that future so it's important to involve everyone, people inside the organization, stakeholders outside it. It's important to think about what are you becoming as an organization? And then really your role as a leader, far from sort of sitting in a room and coming up with a purpose statement and then working out what the strategy is and the culture, is to remove the obstacles uh, so that others can co-create it. You know, if there are obstacles and there are bound to be inside an organization. So for instance, you might have a purpose that talks about one thing and then you find that your incentivization structure rewards exactly the opposite for instance so you know help remove that obstacle but yeah i think working out that your role is to create the conditions for this to happen rather than forcing it to happen um definitely that's i'd give yeah the verb you used first to talk about how do you get to the purpose was discover and you've sort of come back to that theme a couple of times i actually think that's a really important way to think about it partly because I've seen people go wildly wrong when they think it's just what you said not to do, something to be designed and then imposed rather than, no, it's there already. You just got to kind of brush away all the stuff that's grown up around it and it'll be there. Yeah, exactly. And I love the sort of language you're using as well, Belton, because it's more natural, organic, you know, recognizing that any kind of organization is a group of people, um, you know, interacting with each other. And, and these, these sort of words like uh, curate or cultivate or remove the, the unnecessary weeds or whatever else so that what's truly there, the essence of it can, can form, that is about as far away from sort of machine engineering <laughs> mechanistic language as you can get. And I think that's right. I mean, a part of what this whole journey is about is recognising that humans bring a huge amount of capability and the way that perhaps we have thought about business before has really limited their ability to bring all of that into work so thinking about intrinsic motivation thinking about what brings me joy you know why would I want to do any of this and not thinking that the answer is a bigger bonus because that only gets so far yeah well and sorry just it almost feels obligatory uh, just to drop AI into the conversation you know if you imagine that's actually going to work the signs that maybe it will. A lot of the more cognitive, kind of mechanical engineering, you know, there's a defined way to figure this out, works, going to be done not by people. I mean, the more human aspects of what people bring, I think, become more important. Absolutely right. You know, people are, as we all know, complex, and, and we are both 
self-interested and social beings motivated by connection and collaboration and creating something greater than yourself and and lots of other things and I think the more that we are able to develop environments that help encourage people to bring all of that into their organization the more likely it is that the organization will succeed in the long term because it will be more innovative more connected to the society it's serving more collaborative you know thinking more expansively about what's possible so I think it's going to become ever more important to curate environments where humans can flourish because you're absolutely right. AI is likely to be doing a lot of the stuff. The thing that it can't do is humanity. <laughs> Not yet anyway. <laughs> Not yet. And, and, may, and maybe never because that sort of level of nuanced judgment where you're taking into account things that you can measure and a load of stuff that you can't, <laughs> you know, all of that intangible stuff that actually makes life <laughs> worthwhile. That's the stuff that I think humans should try and retain. <laughs> Absolutely. What haven't I asked you about that you wish I had? What might we want to spend a few minutes talking about? Um, well, I mean, I guess the first thing is uh, we have a website, Belden, so you haven't asked me what the website address is. Mm -hmm. Good. Let's have that. It's nutrientforbusiness.org. The reason that I say that is because it has really uh, everything that we have learned over the past you know more than a decade thinking about this and working with businesses on there for free so it is an incredible resource there's something called the knowledge base which um, uh, was written by the team before i joined um and, and a brilliant sort of distillation of everything they've learned so when i read it as i studiously did for my interview i thought well goodness me this would have saved me five years of reading books and watching ted talks and going to conferences and reading articles because the team has done a great job of curating it all so if anyone's looking for a fast route up the learning curve on what it means to be a purpose-led business and how you know some of the things to think about have a look at the website um yeah and then i, I guess one of the other things that I would say, and I don't know what the question would be that would have prompted this, is somebody said this to me ages ago, and I wrote it on my wall because I liked it so much. A lot of this work can feel kind of overwhelming and complex because we're talking about systems change and we're talking about you know, business is just one actor in a system that includes government and regulation and capital markets and business schools and a whole lot of other things. And it can feel very overwhelming when you try and imagine what can we do to contribute to a future that we actually want. And the advice was, start where you are, use what you have and do what you can. And I really loved that sort of practical wisdom of just begin. It doesn't really matter where, <laughs> just begin and start. And because this feels like soul work, you know, you don't need to drag yourself to it. It's its own reward and you'll find people along the way who give you energy. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's what I'd say. I, I love that. I love that. Because if you look at it and you kind of go, well, what's the counterfactual to that? You're not going to be able to start anywhere other than where you are. You're not going to be able to work with anything other than what you got. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's so true. But I think, again, for strategists, it can be quite tempting to try and put things into neat slides and say, well, here's where we are. And this is what we're trying to aim for. To narrow it down quite quickly, because it feels more manageable. And actually, you begin to look out and go, God, what's the role of business in society? How do we think about the human person? And what are the quality of relationships that we're trying to achieve? These are big questions. <laughs> and it can feel very paralyzing, or it can feel like, well, I, you know, when I've got 10 years to do a doctorate, you know, come back and, and ask me those questions. 
But actually, um, anybody can begin thinking about those and begin with, well, what can I do today? And that might be, I can make a cup of tea for my colleague. It could be, I could think a bit more about um, how we might think about including stakeholders in this decision, or how we might think a bit more about how we enhance the positive impacts of X and reduce the negative impacts. You know, whatever it is, you can start wherever, and it tends to build because people get enthusiastic about making the world better that tends to be how it works uh, what questions if any might you have for me um how many of these have you done now Belden? how many of these podcasts have you done a lot the 85th episode went out yesterday that's a lot what has surprised you about all of them um a couple of things maybe that surprised me because I sort of thought it might be the case, but it was interesting to see it. One is how many different types of things business leaders, organization leaders will point to as a purpose. Yeah, It's just a very big range. Um, and then how few in that range was about making money. Yeah. And I've talked to a, you know, a pretty diverse mix of people. So I think that's one. Um, and then the other is the extent to which the way people actually go at it, wrestle with it, is very different and sometimes slightly accidental. I think CEOs, business leaders don't spend as much time as they might thinking about, so I want to revisit my strategy what are my options for doing that? Or what are all the different ways I could do that? And what are some of the dimensions along which I could choose where we want to be? So you talked about becoming more inclusive. I think that's one of the big frontiers for how most organizations do their strategy, to think through how do we genuinely involve lots of other stakeholders in it. So it's great to hear you're doing that and great to hear you're talking to other people about how they might do that. I think it's one of the more challenging dimensions. Yeah, I think that's really true because it doesn't feel efficient, right? You know, the more people you talk to, the longer it's going to take and the more ideas you're going to have. And What if what they want us to do isn't what we want to do? Exactly, and how are you going to do a trade-off? And, you know, yeah. are you just raising up expectations? And yeah. But if this is about shaping the future then hearing from as many people as possible who are going to be impacted by the decisions that you as an organization make is most likely to result in you being of as much use as possible to those stakeholders which is most likely to result in you being a more resilient organization so i think it's just a necessary part of strategy now you know that that kind of uh, inclusive curiosity but also the ability to dream there's a human word again yeah. not often heard in, in, <laughs> in strategy documents but to dream about a better future and then work out how you might contribute to it um so i i do think that element of creativity and imagination and hope and and a little touch of idealism is actually a really necessary part of creating something that more people want to get involved with, including strategic partners and, you know, suppliers and your customers and your investors and, and, you know, that you're trying to build something that people want to be involved with and that will require, yeah, creativity, imagination. Yeah. Yeah. Responding to what you said there, one other big challenge for a lot of particularly for-profit organizations 
is how can they create, how might they create a, a revenue stream, a business model that really enables their purpose rather than works against it? I think for a lot of organizations, they're sitting there feeling we've got financial objectives and we've got purpose objectives, and they feel like they're taking us in different directions rather than they're taking us in the same direction. I think that's, for a lot of organizations, an invention. You're not going to analyze your way into it. No. And what an exciting strategic challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And I think business responds very well to words like should and must and responsibility and because it feels a bit onerous and, uh, you know, (laughs) not something you want to leap at. But it does respond really well to potential and opportunity. And, uh, you know, and I think this is the biggest opportunity potentially that the world of business has seen for about 200 years. What we have is a clear and growing need for business to play a positive role in shaping our future. Consumers who want that, investors who want that, employees who want that, regulators who want that, and therefore a massive business opportunity to create profitable solutions to the problems of people and planet and not profit from creating them. And it's going to happen quick. You know, this isn't like an industrial revolution that's going to take 50 years. I think the next decade, as lots of other people have said, is going to be pretty critical and pretty transformative in terms of the role of business in society, what a good business looks like, what kind of business people want to work for, invest in, buy from. So if you're not thinking about this already as an organisation, your relevance is already declining and it will only decline ever more quickly. So this is no longer a kind of, you know, interesting exercise that you might do on the side or an away day. This is this is now probably your number one business risk and opportunity is how do we transform our organisation to be truly uh, positive <laughs> for society and the environment and how quickly can we get there? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to say thank you, one, for being a guest and for sharing your insights and experience. Second, I want to say thank you to you and Blueprint for you know involving me in some of what you're doing because it's been a great learning experience for me. And third is just to say thank you for being such an incredible, positive, happy force in the world. Well, thank you, Belden, and, and thank you so much for inviting me on this. I, I've really enjoyed it, and it's always a delight to speak to you. Well, likewise, likewise. Um, I'm going to put a link to your website in the show notes, but if there are people out there who want to get more involved, what would you suggest? Uh, well, you can always email me directly. Uh, Sarah at blueprintbusiness.org. I mean, the website is a great resource. As I said, the community of practice is out there. Uh, we've got a coaches and consultants network. So if you're interested in being involved in that, then do email. Uh, and also, I mean, there's a button on the page if you'd like to donate. Oh, oh yeah, you can't forget that. <laughs> Only once you, uh, once you think that what we're doing might be worthwhile. <laughs> Good. Anyway, again, thank you for joining yeah, us. Thank you so much. Thanks for the invite. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Purposeful Strategist. In addition to being available on our website, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, please do follow us and leave us a five-star review. It helps others find the podcast. Thanks again, and join us soon for the next episode of The Purposeful Strategist.